Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Hello again, this is Dr. Todd Fredericks, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. We have a wonderful uh, continuation of a, a discussion we started earlier with uh, Dr. Tyler Simet. And with that, I'll give it to Ms. Arg for a continuation of questioning. Yeah, uh, welcome to another episode of Rotations. Uh, we're joined again with Dr. Tyler Simet, uh, the Chief of Clinical Education at AACOM, um, talking about medical education and... and uh, how to diagnose a noise in the woods. So thank you for joining us, Dr. It's always a snake. It's always a snake. It's always a snake. And we also have our panelists. will always be upset with you for being such a worrywart, but they will be thankful that somebody's taking the pressure off of them because they no longer have to worry when you're worrying. So Tyler, that is an excellent, I'm going to jump in here again. I have made it a practice that when my gut says call, I call, and I'm an urgent care doctor, right? So I'm supposed to be in and out, treat and street, goodbye, go to your family doctor. But it's amazing the response you get when you call a patient and you apologize at 9.30 or 10 o'clock with a lab and say, I'm sorry I'm calling you so late, but I wanted to let you know I found this lab tomorrow morning if there's an issue, I need this, or I I didn't, you know, I want you to be aware of this. Patients love that. They are so, they are uniformly happy to hear that someone is thinking about them. Even if you're worried and you just want to sleep well that night, they just are glad that someone's taking the time to say, hey, you know, because they don't know you from Adam or Eve when you, they walk in. You're just the doctor. It's like the ER doctor. You're just, who, whoever that guy was or that girl was. But when that, whoever that person calls them back, it's a unique experience for them, and they appreciate it deeply that you took the time. Mm-hmm. The now, Japanese have a concept called own which is acceptance of responsibility. And for the patient, it's a transfer of responsibility. So it's kind of partially parental in that once they've come to you, they feel that they've unloaded their symptoms and they can leave the symptoms with you. And that it's now your role to address the symptoms, to keep track of the symptoms. And they'll just go on with their life having unloaded their symptoms. a lot of kids feel that way with the parents. The parents will assume responsibility to get you paid, to get your school paid for, to get you to school, to get your clothes purchased. And the parental responsibility lets you function without worrying about some of the basic needs that you have. Mm-hmm. In healthcare, it's the same way. The symptoms you have, every night I get tired and I end up going unconscious for seven, eight hours. What is it? Well, mm-hmm. don't worry about it. I'll worry about it. If you hit 10 hours, I'll start intervening. But in the meantime, when you're unconscious, we'll make sure you're safe. Mm. So giving up that responsibility to someone is very beneficial, very reassuring, and has a tremendous value that we may not think of, but it matters. Having a clinic you go to, having a healthcare system where you know how to enter it is part of that concept. Knowing the first step and where you can unload the responsibility, where you can share your symptoms, and where you can interact is a comforting and a, a, a way of, of acting that really makes a difference. I want to go, go back to something you mentioned um, last week about uh, the, the thought-based learning versus the fact-based learning and, and how, because we have so many resources at our fingertips, we're, we're trying to teach people how to think. Um, I, I was wondering, what role does apprenticeship play in that? You know, hmm. we talk about our professors in, in these clinical experiences. Um, how, what, what role do they play, and, and how does AACOM kind of set the standards for all of that? Well, we still have some apprenticeships 
But what we've changed is saying that an apprenticeship as a clinical learning experience needs a curriculum. And a curriculum means a body of knowledge and a way of assessing. So if you do an apprenticeship in August, are you going to see the flu? Well, the flu is usually October to February. So if you don't see it, then even though it's you're following someone, it's no, no longer an apprenticeship when you just stay and learn what's there. It's deeper in that there's a curriculum involved. So you, if you don't see the flu, you've got to get exposure to the knowledge about the flu somehow. Mm-hmm. And that makes an apprenticeship a little bit more complex. Um, we moved away from apprenticeships in the 1930s because of business. Because school said, you know, we can have one student with one doctor. Or we can tell this doctor what needs to be taught. And we could put four students there or 10 students there. And now we can increase class size. And now we could have 10 students learning the same thing and create what we now know is a learning community. Mm -hmm. Because people tend to learn some things from people at the same level, some things from people one step above them, and some things from people with with a full body of knowledge. You don't need the person with a full body of knowledge all the time, but you do need them to guide, to assess, and to identify the problems. But having a learning community, having 10 students address problems and learn to learn themselves is a step beyond apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. It's not just hoping you get anything, everything. It's not just hoping that things sink in. It's actually saying, if this wasn't addressed here, it needs to be addressed somewhere else. Um. One thing that I that I've kind of noticed during our education so far is that we kind of we get these syndromes or we learn about these diseases and these processes, and then we kind of get like this perfect image of like this patient. And if it doesn't come just like that, then I think it's kind of hard for us to recognize because we don't really see like all the different variables that come into play. So, um, how do you how do you think you can how do you, how do you think you address that when it's like a paper test where you have like four answers and it's A, B, C, or D? Like how do you kind of get like that view with that like in the testing format? That's why I like clinical education better than basic sciences. I get to get a gestalt on a student mm. and see how they're thinking and how much they worry. I'm much happier with a student who's worried they're missing something. And when they get the red herring or the yellow cod or something different, they're addressing it, although not being completely pulled away from the, the core problem because of it. And that's why writing stuff down and doing differential diagnoses, which we don't do enough of in the chart anymore, but we still do a lot of in education. So seeing how you address the outliers matters. I know in law they say that bad cases make bad law, but in medicine, the outliers define the physiology and get us thinking in ways that we wouldn't have thought otherwise. And it's critical to address it so that you put the patient's mind at ease, you've accepted responsibility, You've thought of the worst possible cause for the outlier symptom, but you haven't focused on it to where they've made the bump in their, the center of their mouth their life. Because a lot of times the hard palate comes together and 10% of people get a lump. 5% of people may have an external auditory meatus with a little opening in front of the ear Mm -hmm. that is from embryology, that it doesn't, it can get infected. There are things to think about, but it's not something they want to address every visit. They want to turn the responsibility over to you so that if anything new comes up, you you care about them. How do you, um, 
this type of thing you're talking about where you're asking questions, you're not really sure of yourself, but you're the type of person who goes looking for the answer and you don't have it right at that moment. How do you test that in standardized tests where we're going to be tested on our boards on a basis set of questions that everyone's getting? And some people, they might just, they might love standardized tests because they know they're going to crush them because they study for them, they know what they're going to get. But there's other people who they are terrified of standardized tests because they're just not that type of thinker. How do you account for that when you're looking to educate a medical student and a potential physician for the country? I agree with you that it's a very different type of thinking, and we do try and guard against what we call satisfaction of search, which is when you find the right answer, you stop thinking. Uh, you're rewarded for finding the single answer best early on in your career, but then we shake you up and say, nope, not that way anymore. Let's see how broad you can get and how many issues you can find. So we don't make life comfortable for students. And I think that's one of the things I value about an osteopathic medical education that's different from an MD medical education. Osteopathic medical education trains you in multiple environments so that you have to own your own answers. You have to think about how would I do this in an office? So treating someone with a headache that's really bad is different in an office, an urgent care center, or a hospital. If you've got a CAT scanner, you can address it differently than if you don't have a CAT scanner. If you have to tell every patient with a headache you want them to go to the hospital and take another day off of work and spend $350 for a CAT scan, they're going to look at you funny. So if somebody has the worst headache of, the life, of their life, chances are they're going to go to the ER. Mm -hmm. If they don't, you're going to have to triage them in your office and say, you look uncomfortable. This may be the worst headache of your life. Even though the patient is saying, no, I need to get back to work. So by seeing pe people in multiple environments, you become the arbiter and not the environment. You can't say they came to the hospital, they deserve a CAT scan. Some people go to the hospital because they don't know where else to go. So the environmental thinking gets, gets put into your brain as the provider, as the physician, and that matters. This is a really big, big issue about uh, when we go about standardized tests. Um, when you hear the people railing against um, maintenance of certification and maintenance of licensure, um, it is not uncommon at all for you to residency train in something and 10 years after residency find yourself in an area of medicine that's completely different, uh, especially in the primary care fields, because you, know, you end up drifting and you end up specializing the problem is, is that how do you make sure that everybody comes out of the chute with a basic level of knowledge that the state medical boards can look at and say, this person's met the criteria and gates that we want that are acceptable? So what I've kind of found from the first year of medical school is that we're not, because we're not going to remember everything we've learned from last year. Not. I mean, that's ridiculous <laughs> to assume. No. What I found is that we're basically being taught how to learn quickly and efficiently so that we can use that later on. So is our boards just testing us on how we can learn, not what we can learn, because if we're going to be expected to remember everything from the past two years, it's going to be just a book well, up there. you got to remember something else. The boards are all curved, too, yeah. right? There's just there's outliers and discriminators. There's a whole methodology for statistical analysis of that where they say, well, this, this percentage of students didn't get it right, so we're going to throw that out. I mean, it really is the – and I, I go back on this – at least getting you through medical school and licensure – I don't know that there's a better way yeah. to do it that can make sure with the sheer number of people that we have that we can reassure the licensing agencies that, yes, the standard has been met. 
It is very difficult, especially if you're a person, and Dr. Simon's talking about it. I overthink every question because I deal with patients as an anecdote. So they say, here's your question. And I say, well, I can think of an exception to this I've seen. I can think of an exception to this I've seen. I think and suddenly I've got three different possibilities, but I don't have the option of being able to explain it and say, this is why I think this is the best of the answers. But this, just so you know, this is what I've also done. Yeah, if you it's can't tell, not... I'm very nervous for boards. <laughs> okay, so aren't we all? Hey, Tyler, how many, how many, how many second year students pass the boards? What percentage? I believe it's about 90 to 95%. Yeah. Good. And the odds simple. are in our favor. Yeah. <laughs> if the odds may the odds ever be in your favor. <laughs> exactly. That's right. That's right. But I also want to advocate for boards as having a role mm -hmm. because there's a life cycle to a, to a physician. And when you go to medical school, you need to, at one point in your career, have this knowledge in your head or have seen this knowledge or know how to access it. Because if you don't know it exists and if you don't have it at one point in your career, you won't think about it when you have the patients who are different, who don't follow through the mainstream and have what everyone else has. And for seven to 10 years after you graduate from medical school, most medical students have imposter syndrome. They feel they're not smart enough. They feel they're not good enough. They don't feel they own the title yet. And there's a discomfort. And they treat this discomfort as most high achieving individuals do. They overwork, they broaden what they do. They have to prove their good to themselves and to others and they seek out credentials like boards. After that, the patients start noticing where you spend your time and who you spend your time with. And the practices tend to focus on what you're good at, what you like, what you value, and who you give unconscious cues to to come back because they excite you. And that's usually about 10 to 20 years after graduation from medical school. After that, when you start hitting 50, 55 years of age, Doctors realize, and I'm in that category, we, we start to forget things. And we have to find out how to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. I can tell you at the end of a 12-hour shift, my differential diagnosis starts to narrow. And I start to protect myself and say, ooh, I better think and make sure I've got everything written down. A lot of doctors at that age start to focus on the things they've done really well. One disease, one process, and they've got the patient population that they've taken with them to do this. The testing for somebody in stage three of their career should be different than the testing for somebody in stage one. Because when I went to medical school, back to anthrax, anthrax was talk and die. You'll never have somebody with a chronic anthrax condition. You'll never have somebody with swelling. They'll be dead and their death is rapid. Well, that was wrong. If I hadn't had that in my background to think about it, I wouldn't have known to question it. So, so the, the, your point, Tyler, is excellent. The one that I worry about is measles because, right, I've never seen a case of measles. But the only thing I have to go back on is what was board tested of me of what measles should present like, even though it may not, at least I know it's out there. And if I see complex spots, which I've never seen a complex spot outside of a picture, there's a, you have to have a basic language and a basic foundation in to help that differential diagnosis. And the other thing I like about what Dr. Simon's saying is it is absolutely true, this idea of learning over time and as you age as a physician. My differential diagnosis and my note looks far different at the end of nine hours than it does at the beginning of nine hours. You really do start to compensate. You start to really, well, this is my thought process. This is why I'm thinking this way. Because you want to make it very clear about my brain's tired. Processing is slowing down here. Uh, 
it's a very interesting thing, and I'm, it's funny. I'm glad, I'm so reassured that you came on today, Tyler, because I thought I was the only one that was going through that. But now I know you're doing it too. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask. Um, you know, I, I had a, an emergency room clinical experience just a, a few days ago, and the amount of people that were going through some sort of a substance abuse issue was mm-hmm. just staggering. I had no idea the problem was as bad as it was, and, and part of it is you know due to the area that we're in. But you know, I didn't. Yeah. Southeast Ohio, yeah. Um, so I, I just didn't know much about it. And I, I was wondering then, you know, since this is something that's, you know, a relatively recent phenomenon, is it, does medical education respond to things like this? Like, what, you know, are we going to see more of that taught in schools now that we know that it, it is an issue? And I guess how, how then does the process change in response to things that are ongoing uh, medically in the country? And also to so add to that, how, sorry, I just want to be asked, to add to that, how would the doctor and the physician community change the cultures to maybe have a more broad-based effect on substance abuse problem or something mm-hmm. like that, so that we're not just treating it, but we're having an impact on it on a larger scale? 20, actually 30 years ago, I wrote a book called The Addictionary, The Addiction Dictionary, about how to talk to somebody who's addicted to drugs. Because substance abuse back in 1992 was a huge problem something I saw in the ER, in the office, and felt it needed more focus. It got a lot more focus when the federal government said, pain is a vital sign. Well, it's not a vital sign, but we're gonna legislate as as if it is. We want every doctor to treat it as if it is, and we want you to trust patients more, so if they say they're in pain, you need to address it. That got attention on it, but it also got more treatment to it, because if you're gonna be tested on what you did for somebody who said they had pain, you're going to do something. And I think that worsened the problem that was already there. I totally concur. I totally concur. Uh, doctor, and I would and, and think about this, since, since we do have some episodes that specifically deal with addiction, uh, Tyler, I don't know how you feel about this, but what I feel was is that coming out, I was fortunate enough, I did a year of anesthesia residency, so I knew a lot about narcotics when I was done. But for most doctors... They, didn't, they were not prepared with the level of education of the correlation between types of pain and delivery systems to fix it. And so because there was such an emphasis placed on you must treat pain, you must treat pain, you must treat pain, I think that there was overcompensation on the part of physicians to say, well, you've got a sprained ankle. Um, I know ibuprofen probably works, but I know Vicodin definitely will work. So I'm going to give you, you know, 30 Vicodin for a sprained ankle. I have, I have seen this and worse many times. Um, because I think there was a fear that someone was going to get prosecuted or they were going to get in trouble because they didn't adequately treat pain. And the natural progression of that is is that in certain types of people, that was like giving them, you know, what was it? it was giving them Vicodin. And they, their brains reacted to it in such a way that years later, then they tell you the story about how Vicodin became too expensive, so they started shooting heroin or smoking heroin. I mean, there's a direct relationship in there. Um, and it, it really did take off in the 90s. It was crazy to watch. So since then, you know, uh, I think second year now, towards the end of the school year, we have like a week that we learn a lot about addiction and all these medicine. So I'm just curious, you know, from your end, as a person who, who dictates a lot of what's in the curriculum, how does that work? Do you guys have like a meeting where it's like, okay, we need to start teaching medical students and doctors about this, you know, and, and, and at what stage does that kind of happen? Well, we don't dictate what's taught, but people can come to us to promote a topic, to um, share knowledge and get it out to people so people start thinking about it. And you know, everyone always has to start with a survey of what's being done. 
but they can share at the ACOM annual conference. They could share in JOA. If you write an article about a new topic, right now, adolescent medicine, nutrition, there are a lot of topics fighting for attention, trying to get into the curriculum. And we start saying, what's the body of knowledge? Is it unique? How accurate is it? Um, is it in SNOMED? Do you have a distinct language that's been accepted by somebody else? Do you have a specialty college or somebody practicing this that will advocate saying it needs to be taught in medical schools? Um, are they teaching it in some medical schools? So there's a process they go through to promote and to share the importance of some things. Before we taught pain very well, but we didn't teach pain management because we didn't manage it well. Mm. Addiction, we still don't have the answer. We still don't know what level personality plays into it, what level is normal, and what the natural history of addiction is. When do they stop on their own with no intervention? So they're fighting for time in the curriculum with some knowledge and some questions. When do you teach the problem versus when do you teach a solution? Um, is the government going to come out and say, we want you to teach this solution to people because of lobbying or because it's the best answer now. And what does that do to thinking in the future when more answers come out or more data comes out that questions the appropriateness or the effectiveness or the side effects of some of the answers? So then um, looking to the future, uh, you know, I'll dime myself out. I, I never go to class. I always uh, watch the lectures online. Um, and then I know some schools now have virtual dissections uh, where you can do it all with this computer program. So, you know, Looking at the future of medical education, do you see that we're still going to continue to have these actual brick and mortar medical schools or do you see it moving online or, or some sort of hybrid between the two? I'm seeing things change dramatically. Everything we do in medical education can and will be done differently. There is now an online medical school, the Oceana University School of Medicine for Samoa, where with 10,000 islands, they needed to have you present for some things but they found a lot of things can be done remotely. And we're learning what can be taught better online and what do you need in-person assessment for and in-person training for. We're still learning. A lot of things can be done just as well at two times speed as they can be at one times three. I'm also concerned about the, the buy-in of medical school and why nobody has come up with an idea of creating a medical school that actually gives uh, sequential, uh, accredita sequential cred credentials as part of the process. You know, credentialing someone first as a paramedic and then as a PA and then finally taking them through the end where they get their doctorate so that there's gates where the investment up front isn't all in. It's well, I'm going to try it. I'm going to get some clinical experience at this level. If I like it, then I'm going to progress on to this level. Then I'm going to progress on to this level. At least when I leave, I'll have the credentials. I can go out and practice at that level if I want to and not have assumed this massive debt without having my eyes opened. And, and I'm waiting for somebody to create a school that does that. So I think you're at the forefront of the argument of medical education and where we go. Really? And osteopathic medical nice. education. <laughs> we are still saying that a DO is a fully trained physician who once licensed should have the freedom to do everything. And we don't want to address some of the movement in healthcare to badging because badging tends to break things down into what is billable. What are the 11 mm -hmm. most profitable diagnoses and we'll treat only that. And we can train a provider who can do the three most common surgeries 
but if they nick a bowel or they have free air somewhere, they can't address that and they need help. Do we allow doctors to not be fully trained? And what does that do to our public perception if you have doctors who are somewhere in process or physicians, DOs or MDs who are fully trained, who no longer have full training and no longer would be eligible for complete and total licensure and freedom. We have egos that we mm -hmm. recruit the top students and we want to give the students the freedom to do everything. Business says there's a better model. Do we fight business and say we are academic in what we do? Well, I have a more self-serving reason. And since you mentioned disasters, Tyler, because I come from a world of pre-hospital medicine too, and I'll just plug PLOS Currents. If you ever want to know a good place to start, go to PLOS and look at disasters sometimes, the topics that are talked about there. But right now we're recording this in the midst of, her, of a hurricane in Texas. And the reality is you've got a bunch of Texas medical schools, a bunch of students who are absolutely uncredentialed to do anything. When in fact, if those second years held national paramedic registry uh, credentials, they would be very useful in the first few days of that uh, particular problem. Uh, and so it seems to me a reasonable thing to look at it from a, a state of national resiliency and be a leader and say, look, we're not just producing doctors, but you don't know how many doctors I talk to that don't know the first thing about pre-hospital care. They, they don't know how to stop bleeding. They don't know how to cut an airway. They don't know how to do the basic life-saving procedures that we train 18-year-olds to do in the military. And yet there's useful skills especially in times when there's crisis or duress in the country on a wide scale. We're never taught to No, do that. Zach and I, we were in Cleveland last mm -hmm. winter, and we were at the market, and this a guy next to us, we were standing in line to get crepes, I think. Yeah. <laughs> really crepes cool. Is good. What kind, were they good? Yeah, oh, they were yeah. good. Okay. Um, but this, this guy standing next to us, he started going down to a diabetic seizure, and we just looked at each other. There were two other medical students with us, and we're just like, what do we do? Because All right. <laughs> well, let's get back to the basics of the education that you were talking about, which yeah. is... A lot of people are moving to saying, we want to credential you for things that are billable. And we'll credential you to take care of a seizure. We'll credential you to take care of sunburn. Um, the problem with that is you lose anything that's not profitable. And you lose mm -hmm. some of the genetic diseases that are too expensive. And you pigeonhole people into doing certain things. So while the badging is important and figuring out what needs to be credentialed is important, and I think you're going to see that happen more and more. The danger in that is how do we protect a person who we don't know what they have? And how do we protect healthcare as a profession and not as a business? So I do think badging is important. I do think medical students should be badged in first aid, advanced cardiac life support, um, emergency response. And there are a lot more things we can badge them in. We're moving more towards EPAs or entrustable professional activities, which are activities you do in the hospital that can be billed for, that have validity and independence in the need for them to be done. And that's important too. And that's a concept that is becoming a lot more important in medical education. So I think your, your points are well taken and it's gonna be fun to watch over the next 20 years.
We good? I think we're good. Thank you so much for joining us yep. again. It was a really interesting thank conversation. Well, we wore Dr. Dr. Simon out, and uh, we just want to thank him for his time. And, of course, he's very busy, and he's well-traveled, and he's all over the place, but he's got a lot of information. Did you guys get something out of this? Oh, yeah, definitely. Did you? Very yeah. interesting. And uh, I'm off to teach, uh, well, I'm off to pro help proctor vital signs, the antiquated vital signs, which are my favorite things in medicine. And then the rest of you guys are going to go off and skip class and yes, worry about boards. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. We'll talk to you later. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and edited by Brian Plough. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. <laughs> <laughs>